Hello and welcome to the podcast for the August issue of The Lancet Neurology. And I'm delighted to be joined this month by Elena Becker Barroso from The Lancet Neurology. Welcome, Elena. Hello, Richard. Elena, let's start with a research article. It's a pilot study and it's assessing the potential of deep brain stimulation for dystonia, chorioathetosis, cerebral palsy. Now, let's start here, Elena, with some definitions. Cerebral palsy itself is a heterogeneous condition. So how is this form of cerebral palsy categorized? The study includes 13 patients with this subtype of cerebral palsy, dystonia choreoacetosis cerebral palsy. These patients had uh, severe movement disorders but not cognitive impairment. Although dystonia choreoacetosis cerebral palsy is thought to be a cause of secondary dystonia, this form of cerebral palsy has most of the features of primary dystonia. Bilateral deep brain stimulation has sustained benefits in treating primary dystonia and therefore there are great expectations for its potential use in patients with dystonia choreoacetosis cerebral palsy. So Elena, what are the aims of the current study and could you just briefly run through the methodology? The study is reported by the French SPIDE2 study group. They report a multicenter pilot study of bilateral deep brain stimulation for the treatment of adults with cerebral palsy. The primary endpoint in this study was the change in movement and disability scores from baseline after one year of continuous neurostimulation of the globus pallidus internus. The clinical assessment was done using the burke fan marsden dystonia rating scale, cognitive function, mood, pain, quality of life, and psychological status were also measured at baseline and at one year after surgery. And we should stress that this is a pilot study, so much caution needs to be taken when interpreting the results. But nevertheless, Elena, the results are interesting, aren't they? The results are preliminary, but they are, they are very, very encouraging. The overall improvement in the movement score at one year after surgery was well over 20% from the baseline score. The intervention seems to also improve body pain and mental health status, whereas cognition and mood were not affected. So I think this is a very promising technique. Indeed. So what are the next steps, do you think? The study is small and includes only 13 patients. Definitely large randomized clinical trials are needed to assess whether the technique is efficacious. Thanks, Elena. Next, a systematic review, and this is assessing motor recovery after stroke. Can you just give us some context here? What is the main issue? The most common impairment caused by stroke is motor impairment which typically affects the control of movements of the face, the arm and the leg on one side of the body. This unfortunately occurs in about 80% of patients with a stroke, so there's no wonder stroke is the main cause of acquired adult disability in high-income countries. It seems, Elena, does it not, that there seem to be plenty of interventions around, certainly in possibly in clinical practice, but not always with an evidence base to back up their use. So can you give some examples of the type of interventions assessed in this systematic review? That's correct, Richard. That's why we think this is a very important article. This is a comprehensive review on all these rehabilitation interventions for the treatment of motor impairment and the restoration of motor function after stroke. The authors have identified all relevant high-quality evidence focusing on clinical trials. They review the effect of these interventions on the recovery of upper limb function, walking ability, balance, and general mobility. Although several interventions have a potential effect on arm function, constraint-induced movement therapy seems to be the most robust approach to improve upper limb motor recovery. And there is also strong evidence that cardiorespiratory physical fitness training improves walking ability, that is, gait. In this article, in addition to this meta-analysis, the authors also put this evidence in context by providing a semi-quantitative classification of effectiveness 
I believe this is very helpful, particularly because all this data have been cross-referenced to the most recent clinical practice guidelines. I really invite uh, our readers to go and check them up for themselves because this can be really, really practical and helpful information. Thanks, Elena. And let's conclude briefly with a discussion about the Lancet Neurology and its impact factor. Do tell us more. Well, I'm very pleased to tell you more about this. For the fifth consecutive year, the Lancet Neurology retains the number one position in the clinical neurology category with an impact factor of 14, 14 to 70 for 2008. As you understand, Richard, this is excellent news for us. We are extremely pleased and hope that our community of readers, authors and peer reviewers are very pleased as well. I would like to thank all of them. We are still number one and they made it happen. Thank you to all of you. That's a lovely way to end the podcast. So many thanks, Elena. Those were some of the highlights from the August 2009 issue of The Lancet Neurology. We'll see you next month.